Last week, we completed the exegetical portion of the course, or what is also described on the syllabus as Bible study methods. And if you remember, we wanted to break the class up. We started with hermeneutics, and we skipped some portions of hermeneutics. We just did enough of it to get into the biblical text as soon as possible. So the rest of our time, the last four sessions, we'll deal with hermeneutics again and those things that we did not do in the first third of the class or first portion of it. And hermeneutics, the science and art of interpretation, your outline sheet, we're going to deal with history. What's the history of hermeneutics? And this is an area that most of your books will handle, so anything that is not clear or more detailed, you can uh, pick up from all of the textbooks. Now, history is important because we want to learn from it. And one of the books, I think, Zook uses the analogy of traffic signs. And this is just a photograph of the big eye from, from the air. And I wanted to share a little story concerning construction. When they were building the Big Eye, there, there was a there was a different interchange there, and I think they spent uh, three quarters of a billion dollars to build the Big Eye. So it was quite extensive, and I think it was like a two-year project. Well, in the process of building it, because it was larger and it covered greater acreage. Some of the other streets nearby had to be rebuilt and redone as well. One of them, Indian School Road, they totally removed the bridge and made it longer and bigger and more up-to-date, etc. But I remember all over the place, there was all kinds of signs, all kinds of information, and all kinds of warnings concerning the construction here. And I remember specifically, because I, I ride my bike sometimes down in that area, that there were all kinds of signs on Indian school roads, warning signs way early, and then just at the last place where they you could actually enter in, full barricades along with a berm. You'd have to hit that berm in order to get past it. And then further down, there were still signs. And interestingly enough... Somebody apparently had to even move a barricade and drive over a berm and get past that because I observed at the bottom of the bridge after it had been taken out, a car that was all crumbled up. <laughs> I don't know if they were drunk or I don't know if they were just defiant or what the case was, but they did not heed the signs. Well, history is a little bit like that in that history gives us a lot of signposts over time. Some of those signposts are in the form of warnings because we can learn from the mistakes that others have made. In fact, I'm going to share with you some stories of some great theologians. In fact, they're still considered great theologians today, but in some measure they failed in some areas of hermeneutics. So we can look back at those failures and take a warning from them. In other words, don't follow this example. Even of some of the great theologians, 
And one of the problems in hermeneutics is consistency, and many theologians are inconsistent. So we can be warned right from the beginning to attempt to maintain a consistent hermeneutic. And that's one of the major problems today is the failure to maintain a consistent hermeneutic. And particularly when it comes to things at the beginning, because Genesis 1 is difficult for a lot of theologians because of modern science. Also at the end, where things are not as clear-cut in terms of eschatology. Those two areas are particularly vulnerable for theologians to be inconsistent in their hermeneutic. And if you're consistent, then you're going to come to some conclusions that are very much at odds, particularly Genesis, with not only the culture in which we live in, but in some cases, a lot of theologians, and I'm talking about even good, solid, Bible-believing theologians that believe in inspiration and inerrancy. And the same is the case at the end as well. So, uh, we can take warnings from the past, even though people in our culture today are ignoring them, But in some cases, we also gain directions. In other words, that's a function of signs as well. Dead end or information that tells us something about whatever circumstance we're driving across. Construction zone. Detour signs. Those are like directions. In other words, go this way rather than this way. And in hermeneutics, history does the same thing. We can see the good things that theologians did in their interpretation, and we can emulate them. And we're going to see periods of time where a good hermeneutic was in fact set forth, and it had some very definite effects upon the culture, and particularly believers of that period of time. So we'll talk about that as well. And some signs are just informational They just give you additional information so that this will help you making decisions concerning routes, etc. Things like interstate, whatever, interstate highway, 95 in the case of the slide there. Make sure, well, I know I'm on the right path. It keeps popping up as I go. I haven't changed interstates, so this assures me of what's going on. Similarly, in the hermeneutic area, A lot of these principles that we've been looking at set a framework. In other words, set a foundation to be able to do and build upon that the interpretation that we desire that, bottom line, trying to discern what God desires to communicate. So, that's what history does. And if we don't learn from history, the adage of Santayana says, he who does not learn from history is bound to repeat it. And we see examples of that in the culture in which we live in, in that people are ignoring or are uninformed concerning the historical development of hermeneutics and are repeating some of the mistakes of the past. And I'll give you some examples of that as well. So let's take a look at history. And on your outline sheet there, just a simple breakdown by periods. Most of it dealing with church history, although that first period, the Jewish period, goes into the Old Testament. And these are just basic time frames that uh, you would study if you studied just 
overall church history. So if you have a little bit of background in church history, these are the standard breakdowns of church history. So we'll look at each of those periods, but we'll focus not on church history per se, although hermeneutics has had an impact on church history, but we'll look at it within that framework of church history and particularly look at how hermeneutics has changed or what things develop and to understand why we hold to the hermeneutic that we have today. So the first era or the first period is the Jewish period. And actually I've got some dates here and all of these dates are kind of more or less approximate and there's not, in other words, Jewish interpretation didn't begin in 460 B.C. But we have some hints of it even in the Old Testament and from other writings that uh, there was some development or some thought given to the whole area of hermeneutics amongst the nation of Israel in Jewish history, all the way back to 460. But you could say that from the very beginning, in fact, you might turn, would somebody turn to the book of Deuteronomy, and let's take a look at passage there. Look at the last chapter, chapter 34 of the book of Deuteronomy, and let's look at a little passage. First of all, who wrote the book of Deuteronomy? I think this is one of the clearest books in terms of authorship. And you say Moses? Yep. And all conservatives, in fact, that's one of the things that distinguishes conservatives from non non-conservatives is primarily their view on the Pentateuch and the authorship. Uh, non-conservatives don't see Moses as the author, but we would see the authorship as Moses, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. I think Deuteronomy is probably as clear as any of the five books. So then, somebody read verse 5, and what does that have to tell us? Last chapter, 34. So uh, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Keep reading. Buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Deor. No man knows the burial place to this day. Okay, what does that suggest concerning authorship? Did Moses write that? Probably not. Probably not. And if you keep reading, somebody else, Beverly, do you want to read verse 10? Same chapter. But since then, there is not a that has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Okay, again, in the same light, written from the perspective of somebody else other than Moses, describing Moses and describing a period. In fact, it's somewhat of a commentary. In other words, we haven't seen a prophet like Moses, so this suggests a time frame as well, as well as a uh, change in terms of authorship. So little hints like that, and you see some of these editorial notes in some of the other books of the Old Testament as well, not just Deuteronomy. So someone, more than likely a prophet... And usually prophets were the ones that did any editorial work, and I would assume that a prophet here, noting that even that a prophet had not arisen since Moses, or like Moses, there might have been some others, but not like Moses, 
editorial notes adding to the text under inspiration in this case. In other words, this is just inspired, just as inerrant, but adding to the body of material that Moses first wrote and clearly was commissioned by God himself, commanded by God to write. And we see lots of evidence that this is mosaic until you get to verse 5 of chapter 34. Now, I won't give you all the others, but there's a few other books that have similar comments, similar editorial notes that seem to have been added after the original author composed those books. In a sense, you might say, this is somewhat of an interpretive process, an editorial process. So you see hints of this from the very beginning all the way back to the some of the very first writings, the writings of, of Moses himself. And you might even consider first and second chronicles different they are different from first and second kings, even though they cover in large measure the same historical periods and deal with the same in large measure the same material. But first and second chronicles gives a a different perspective. You might even consider a reinterpretation of the same historical period. And you might consider that somewhat of a hermeneutical issue. Why did the writer, whoever he is, and I don't think it's clear as to the author of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, it's considered to be later, obviously, much later than 1st and 2nd Kings, But what motivated him to reinterpret? Well, there's a different situation, different purpose. So he looks at the same events and gives a reinterpretation of the same events. You might consider that hermeneutical as well. Another passage, more clearly, and particularly in this time frame, between somewhere around the 460 time frame, turn to the book of Nehemiah. Let's start. Beverly, you want to read Nehemiah? Nehemiah. 8.1, 8.1, Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8.1. Now all the people gathered as one man in the open square that was in the front of the gate, and they told Israel the scribe before of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Okay, there's the context. Ezra the scribe, was to bring the book of Moses, the law of Moses. Now, this is the Pentateuch. And this is what the Lord obviously gave to Israel. So they gathered together as a group. And let's read verse 2 as well. Do you want to read that one, Patricia? So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand so it gives the time frame and more of the setting and everybody's gathered to listen to the word. Now keep in mind, they've been in exile for 70 years. What can happen in 70 years to any culture? In other words, let's say the United States is conquered by China or whatever and China imposes a totally different regime here. What's going to happen? The younger people won't know most of the younger people are speaking Chinese. And they probably have a reinterpretation of their history. 
and they probably lost a lot of their culture. Well, that's the situation of Israel. They've been in Babylon. But now here you have some exiles that have returned, and Ezra is going to do something here. Now skip and read verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium his name made for the purpose. Beside him stood and all these others. <laughs> okay, so he's standing on a podium, wooden podium, and now he's going to do something. Read verse 8. Yeah, Jim, do you want to read it? 8-8, eight, eight. yeah. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating uh, to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Okay, what do you have in verse 8? Relating to hermeneutics. See what you have there? You have a bilingual situation. The people of Israel no longer spoke Hebrew. They'd lost their language. They're speaking Aramaic. In fact, that's why part of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, because a lot of people couldn't read Hebrew anymore. Ezra still retained the language. So what does Ezra do? He does three things. Did you notice in the context there? What's the first thing that he does? Okay, he's reading, but what does he do as he reads? He's translating into Aramaic, from Hebrew to Aramaic. That's a hermeneutical issue there, the whole process of translation, hermeneutics. What else does he do that's also related to hermeneutics? Sounds like he's maybe even uh, analyzing in order to give them the sense. Yes, giving them the sense. He's he's interpreting. He's not only verbally translating, but he's interpreting. See that? What's the third thing that he's doing? It's that area that goes beyond what we're doing in this course. After you have interpreted, after you've exegeted, what do you do? Expound it. Exposition. So we have translation, interpretation, and exposition. So, in a context where interpretation is needed, we have a biblical, a very clear biblical example of Ezra doing this in a particular period of time when interpretation was needed. Now, There are other examples, but this is the clearest one. There are other occasions where the children of Israel would have needed such a work that involves hermeneutics. So you could say it begins all the way back, even at the beginnings in the Old Testament. So we divide this Jewish period, which, by the way, would run well into 550 A.D. in... uh, after the time of Christ. So we have beginnings, we have hints of it, all the way even from the very first writings of Scripture to begin with. And a clear passage there in Nehemiah in the Old Testament. So you have the beginnings of Jewish interpretation. And you also have, so that was the Nehemiah 8 passage, where Nehemiah translates from Hebrew into Aramaic, interprets, giving the sense. In other words, this is the meaning, this is the idea, this is the intent of Moses, this is the author's intent. 
and he expounds it. Translates, interprets, and expounds. After this Old Testament beginning, we have what is called the Alexandrian period. This is late in Old Testament history. This is after old, the Old Testament period. This is during that silent period of time. The Alexandrian period, somewhere around 300 B.C. to into the life of Christ. During that period of time, there were Jewish people spread all over the world. There were also Jews that lived in Israel. And there was a large group of Jews. In fact, Alexandria, Egypt, was a, a major, uh, was a community of Jews. Alexandria. There was a library there, probably the world's most foremost library. Now, that library was destroyed, and we only have hints of what might have been contained there. That was a center of learning, a center of Jewish activity, and it was a center of Jewish interpretation. Now, before the Alexandrian period, going all the way back to Homer and other writers, the Greek culture had developed religious ideas that came out of Homer and others, Hesiod, other ancient writers. But by the Alexandrian period, the Greek culture had also developed their whole philosophical schools. And by this period of time, there was some conflict between the gods of the Greeks and some of their philosophical ideas. Their gods were, in some cases, like no no better than men. They were immoral. They were hot-tempered. They, they were indecisive in some cases. So they saw these conflicts between the writings, the religious writings, and the philosophical writings. And what they attempted to do is to harmonize them because they, they, they were uncomfortable with this inconsistency in the writings of their ancient authors. They began to allegorize in order to bring harmony between the two areas of, of study, the philosophical and historical, as opposed to the, the religious. That's where allegorism began. Well, since Alexandria was a major Greek location of culture, and because it had a large Jewish community as well, some of these philosophies, some of these hermeneutical issues began to find root in that Jewish community. So, the Jews there who were familiar with Greek philosophy, now they attempted to integrate Greek philosophy into Old Testament thought, into Old Testament theology. But obviously there's some inconsistencies between Greek philosophy and Old Testament teaching. So what did they do? Well, there were a couple of things that they did. Mainly they, they began to introduce the allegorical method that they saw the Greeks do and how it worked. They thought they could do the same thing by harmonizing the Greek philosophy with uh, the Old Testament. So they in began to incorporate allegorical interpretation. Now, another thing that took place in that period of time, 
which is also related to hermeneutics, is a new translation was needed because most Jews now spoke what? Rather than Aramaic, now most Greeks spoke the language of the world of that day. They spoke Greek. So they needed a translation into the Greek. And thus, from Alexandria, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew, of the Old Testament, that was written during that time frame as well. And the photograph is just an archaeological find from Alexandria, which was typical of all ancient cities of any significance. They all have a theater. They all have typical Greek architecture, things like that. So i just give you a little visual there. So these three elements relating to hermeneutics were present in Alexandria in the Jewish community. A desire to harmonize with basically science. The science of that day, the philosophy of that day with the Old Testament and the only way that that could be done is through allegory. Uh, interestingly, we're seeing that same mistake repeated today. The church desires to not look stupid in the scientific community and we reinterpret Genesis 1 from current scientific thought. Old Earth ideas, for example. I think it's a mistake. Okay? Go off on that tangent. And the second thing was the translation of the Septuagint, which is also a hermeneutical issue. And obviously, this is the origin of the allegorical method in terms of interpreting Scripture. It comes from the Greek culture. And this is important because we're going to see it pop up again later on in the next period. So, allegorization came about, first of all, the Greek philosophers to avoid the immoralities of Greek gods, and then uh, the Alexandrian Jews incorporated it to harmonize Judaism with Greek philosophy, with Greek philosophers. Make sense? So, that's the origin of allegorization. And I'll discuss in detail... After we look at the history, we'll talk some more about what allegorization is all about. But it's basically eisegesis. Remember what eisegesis is? It's the opposite of exegesis. Exegesis is the attempt to understand the author's intended meaning and to draw out from the text that meaning. Eisegesis is interpreting by imposing on or into the text ideas that are not necessarily in the text. So the essence of allegorization is eisegesis, not exegesis. And that's its failure. That's a major problem. So the Jewish period, also thirdly, there's this Qumran community, and that is important because they did a lot of writing and a lot of copying. They copied a lot of texts. And we've discovered some of that writing, much of that writing. A lot of that was, well, some of it was preserved at Qumran. The Qumran community was composed of Jewish people that were separatists. They saw Jerusalem, and they saw the priesthood, they saw the hierarchy of Judaism in Jerusalem as corrupt. 
And they felt the only way that they could maintain a pure Jewish culture was to separate. So they separated to an area just west, on the west bank of the Dead Sea, and there's an entire community that has been uncovered by archaeology. These are some of the remains of some of the structures that date back to before the time of Christ. And this overlooks the Dead Sea. In fact, there's the Dead Sea in the background of that slide. This is just uh, another photograph of some of the excavation there to give you a feel. So there was an entire Jewish settlement and community of separatists, people that desire to walk purely and to have a clear understanding of Scripture and attempt to please God. And one of the things they did is they did some hermeneutics. They interpreted as well. And we learn a lot about hermeneutics from their writings as well. They tended to be literalists. Did they have a, a form for uh, influencing the culture? Not a whole lot, because they were separatists. They separated, and in fact, had we not discovered Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, we may not know much about them historically. Yeah, they were separatists. And there's the famous caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And these are not the only ones. In fact, they have found in those hills there several caves with several Dead Sea Scrolls. And there may be others that have not been discovered even to this day. But the first ones to be found were in this cave right there. And just a different angle of the same cave. Closer shot. The hills are somewhat rugged, overlooking the Dead Sea. There's caves here that you can't quite discern. That might be a cave there, where some of these other scrolls were discovered after the original ones. So that just gives you a feel for that area. So, from Qumran, the separatists, we have commentaries, which the essence of a commentary is interpretation. So they were exegetes. We also have, obviously, the scrolls of copies of the text, which... Yes, with the scrolls. And in the first century, one of the things that dominated interpretation was the traditions of the Jews. In other words, Old Testament interpretation of, of Jews. And you remember, or you, you probably heard, the debates between the rabbis Hillel and Shammai. Those debates went on, and people commented on the debates and wrote about them. Well, they came from two different hermeneutical schools. That's why they debated. So in the first century, a lot of those writings were accepted as tradition, so there was tradition as well. And in the first century, there were actually four main types of Jewish exegetes in the time of Christ. Some of them, the minority, were literalists. Some of them took the same approach, or approximately the same approach as what we would take. There was also what is called a Midrashic interpretation. These are Hillel's Basic rules emphasizing comparing texts. 
He emphasized context. There was what's also described as Peshur interpretation. That's the Qumran community. And they borrowed from the Midrashic, but they included a focus on other areas. I should have mentioned that Qumran also saw themselves as living in the last days preceding Messiah. So they had a lot of eschatological emphasis in their interpretation and in their writings. They hoped to see when Messiah would come. They anticipated the soon coming of Messiah. And, in fact, they were right. Messiah did appear. So that's three of the types of exegesis. Literal, Midrashic, Peshur, and what we've already talked about that came out of the Alexandrian school, the fourth one would be allegory. Allegorization. And Jesus battled many of these, particularly those of the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we see specific examples of them. Sermon on the Mount gives Jesus' reinterpretation of the law, basically, that had been corrupted by tradition, Jewish tradition. So that's the Jewish period. Then there was a period after called the Rabbinic period where the Talmuds were written. This rabbinic period from about, well, from the first century to about 550 A.D., many commentaries were written on the Old Testament, a lot of exegesis. There was what's called the Mishnah, which is a commentary on commentaries. So they did commentary upon commentary. The Mishnah is biblical material interpreted much of it in topical, not so much theological arrangement, but it's essentially exegesis, interpretation. The conservative Jews rely quite a bit on the rabbinic period and the Talmuds today, but liberal, I think Judaism is much like the liberal church, it's, just, it's abandoned scripture, much like Liberalism has abandoned the Bible. The two Talmuds, the Palestinian Talmud, written about 450 A.D. It's an interpretation of the Mishnah. And there's a Babylonian Talmud, which was written about 500 to 550 A.D. And it's also a commentary. So that's Jewish interpretation, Jewish hermeneutics. Now you might expect that that would have an impact on the church, and it it has. It had an impact in the early church, and some of the church fathers show evidence of that influence, some more so than others. The next period, uh, you might include in that the apostolic period, this in the Jewish period, which would have been that first century period, where Jesus revolutionized primarily hermeneutics, his interpretation of the Old Testament went at odds with that Jewish community. And he was crucified for it. That interpretation had an impact on the apostles who, in turn, wrote the New Testament, some of them, who, in turn, had an impact on this patristic period, the church period. So now there's a shift away from Judaism and more to 
the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and the New Testament. And it's a hermeneutical shift as well as a theological shift. So the patristic period from about 95, that would be the end of the apostolic period. Last writing of the New Testament would be the book of Revelation. I would date it at about 95 to about 590 A.D. And again, the 590 is not a magical date. It's somewhere in that time frame. And there's probably even a transition from one period to the next. One of the main characteristics of this patristic period, it was in this period when the New Testament was finalized. The canon of the New Testament was finalized. In other words, this is what we will interpret or begin interpreting. The Old Testament canon was finalized even before Christ, but now the New Testament needed canonization. Now, a lot of the books, individual books, were accepted as inspired when received, but the total corpus probably was not finalized until probably after 95, during the patristic period. Some of them were debated, James, for example. Even Luther in the 1500s questioned the canonicity of James much later. We seem to have two groups of church fathers, the Greek and the Latin fathers. They both attempted interpretation. They both dealt with New Testament more so than Old Testament. Some of them were careful exegetes, others not so careful. Another characteristic of the patristic period is we also have the rise of allegorization. So we have apostolic fathers and two schools of thought arose. There's a Alexandrian school that came from these apostolic fathers and you've heard of some of them Clement of Rome, for example, he interpreted scripture and did some writing. Ignatius focused on Christ. In fact, we probably owe him the Christological principle, interpreting scripture from the perspective of Christ. He avoided allegorization. We have an epistle. We don't know who wrote it. The epistle of Barnabas. And there's extensive allegorization in that. So we have kind of both a mixture of literal and allegorization in the Apostolic Fathers. Irenaeus was also in this period of time. These are all second century around that time frame. It's also during this period of time that a lot of the heretics arose, like uh, the Gnostics, a man by the name of Marcion arose. This is misinterpretation. This is a failure in some hermeneutical areas. And they were very quickly branded as outside of orthodoxy, outside of proper interpretation, and were classified as heretics. The school of Alexandria, what do you expect from that, obviously? You expect the Jewish influence, you expect the Greek influence... All those factors that had an impact on Judaism would also have an impact of the church that came out of Alexandria. So the main characteristic of the Alexandrian branch of Christianity would be an allegorization of Scripture. 
And in this case, we have the writings of Clement of Alexandria. That's why we distinguish him from Clement of Rome. He's a totally different individual, totally different theological perspective as well. Now, Origen is very important. Origen is one of the finest theologians of the early church. We owe much to Origen. Although, Origen is... Is that the name of a person? Yes. E-N, not I-N. O-R-I-G-E-N, rather than I-N. His dates, 185 to 254. And by the way, in the handouts I gave you, I gave you a summary sheet of history there. It kind of puts them in categories. That's out of uh, Zook's book. Those of you who have Zook have that in the book. And Origen is out of Alexandria. I started to say that Origen was a fine and probably the greatest theologian of his day. He was a disciple of Clement. This is Clement of Alexandria. We owe to him much of the work of textual criticism. And we owe a lot of even good theology in a, in a lot of ways. He was a, an apologist and probably one of the first fine apologists, in other words, defender of the faith. But what else do we owe to Origen? Here's where a fine theologian went off the tracks in terms of hermeneutics. And the church attributes Origen to allegorization. Now Clement probably sowed the seeds of allegorization and then Origen somewhat refined what Clement began. And he allegorized well-intentioned. There are a lot of issues in the Old Testament that are difficult to resolve. There are enigmas. There are dark sayings. There are things that are not easily interpreted. And what Origen is attempting to do is to try to somehow harmonize these with some of the thinking of his day. In other words, how do we make sense out of these things? Some of the examples, for example, are anthropomorphisms. You know what? Remember what we talked about anthropomorphisms? Where God is portrayed like man so that we can understand something of God. The arm of the Lord the eyes of the Lord, those ideas. Well, he saw those as major issues because he also saw God as spirit. So how do you harmonize these? He tried to do it by allegorizing rather than recognizing legitimate figures of speech and other resolutions to some of the, some of the issues and problems of the day. There are also other issues and problems like the days in Genesis 1. As early as origin, this was a problem. And it's a major problem today. So what do we do today? What, do, what does the church in general do with the days of Genesis 1? They basically allegorize them. In other words, they're not really... Yom does not necessarily mean 24-hour solar day in that context. Yom means something more nebulous. Long ages. Same thing going on today. It's not strictly allegorization, but it is certainly analogous to what church fathers were attempting to do, resolve some of these issues. God walking in the garden, that's an anthropomorphism. 
You know, does God have legs? Does God walk? The incest of Lot. New Testament says he was a righteous man. How do you harmonize that with what went on in Genesis and the daughters there? Noah's drunkenness. Isn't Noah a man of faith? Hebrews 11. So this is kind of an inconsistency. The problem is, is just man is inconsistent. (laughs) A godly man can fall and and stumble and Noah's no exception. So there was a kind of a tendency amongst the church fathers to kind of elevate the heroes of the Old Testament to to the point of almost uh, denying their old nature. But I think the Bible presents them in reality. So allegorization was a means by which they attempted to solve some of these issues. So rather than just accept that, well, one time Noah got carried away and got drunk because he's a human being, right? they tried to make it into something, something different. So that Noah could... Right. Holy or... Yeah. Right. Similar with Jacob and polygamy. How do you harmonize that issue? Allegorization was the means that Origen used. And some of the others that followed after origin. So, we talked about allegorization coming from the Greeks resolving the immoralities of the Greek gods and the conflict of philosophers and their religious community. We saw that the Alexandrian Jews, heavily influenced by the Greek culture, tried to harmonize Judaism with Greek philosophy. They liked Plato. They liked the philosophers. We see the same thing happening to the apostolic fathers. In order to explain Old Testament anthropomorphisms and types and other problems, they resorted to allegorization. And the Alexandrian Christians, so the church fathers began, and that influenced the Alexandrian Christians in an effort to avoid some of the difficulties in Scripture. So that's how it worked itself down, historically. And we're battling allegorization in the 21st century. And the church battled that tendency through much of its history as well. Now, there was a counterbalance in terms of hermeneutics. There were those from Antioch, or the Antioch faction of Christianity. They tended to be literalists. They disagreed with the allegorical approach, and they felt that the proper approach was a literal approach. They were the minority. They're lesser known, but there did exist a literal school. And they reacted primarily to the Alexandrian school. Some of the names, Lucian from 240 to 312. There was a Theophilus of Antioch about 115 to 188. Chrysostom, you've heard of him, 354 to 407. Theodoret, 386, 458. And there was others. So we have, you have two opposing schools. And you also have in the patristic period what are called the later fathers, and they took various views. This goes into 300 and 400 A.D. Jerome being one of them. Jerome dating from about 331 to 419. 
He's primarily noted as a translator from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. He allegorized some, but he also saw the failures of it and later in life abandoned allegorization. You've heard of Augustine, one of the most well-known and important theologians as well. Much of uh, the Roman Catholic Church is based on Augustine, and in fact much of Christianity is based on Augustinian theology from 354 to 430 A.D. He practiced overall sound hermeneutical principles, but he also allegorized. So he used both. And others you would classify as later, 300 and 400 A.D. It's during this later period that we also have some of the church councils that arose. Constantine pressured the church to standardize some of these doctrines that they considered orthodox. So there was a council in that period. There was also a council of Chalcedon where the canon officially was finalized. I think the canon was recognized very early, either early 2nd century or even late 1st century, but they had an actual council where it was officially accepted, the canon of 66 books during that later church father period. We also had within the church apostolic succession begin leading into Roman Catholicism. So we have the Jewish period, we have the patristic period, we have the Middle Ages from 590 to about 1500, Middle Ages. And by the way, I would avoid calling the Middle Ages the Dark Ages, because that is not only inaccurate, but it introduces a bias, and I think it's a liberal bias to describe the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages. There was some scholarship, there was some good work that was done during that period of time, even though it was infrequent. But when you describe this as the Dark Ages, as opposed to, what's the period after the Dark Ages? Enlightenment. See the contrast? Already, what did dominate the thinking of this period of time was somewhat of a biblical worldview, even though there was a lot of errant doctrine. But what some try to portray as the Dark Ages as opposed to the Enlightenment, oh, now man's reason, man's intellect, now we are enlightened. So you see, by calling it Dark Ages, you are biasing the whole discussion there. Describe it as the Middle Ages. Let me give you an overview, a timeline. If you use a timeline here, here's kind of 1000 AD. You have the Jewish period that goes before Christ BC to about the middle of the 500s there. And we have the patristic period that overlaps the last part of the Jewish period and goes a little bit beyond it. And then we have what we would describe as the Middle Ages, which is a long period of time, about a thousand years after the patristic period. Some of the characteristics of the Middle Ages, the allegorical approach of interpreting Scripture is prominent. 
Now you'll notice from that sheet from Zook's book that there's always been at least a small faction of believers that held to a literal approach, but it was a very small faction during the Middle Ages because allegorical interpretation was by far the prominent approach. During this period, some theologians developed a fourfold interpretation. They saw the literal sense as the plain sense. And that plain sense was the literal or the author's intended meaning. They also saw, in fact, the thinking was, this is inspired scripture. And because it's inspired, it goes way beyond what man is capable of understanding. And because it's inspired, there has to be more meaning there than just one. Because God is infinite, so there's conceivably an infinite number of ideas embedded in that literal meaning. And that's the allegorical. In other words, there's conceivably more there than what the average person can discern. So let's dig and let's see if we can find that. So this is the, the literal is the plain sense and the allegorical is more what you can believe by thinking and imagining what the text might present. They also described what's, what they called a tropological sense. In other words, this is more like application. Okay, what do I do now in light of all of these truths that we've dug up out of the text? Tropological. That would be analogous to what we call application. And then there's this eschatological sense, fourthly. Uh, what do we hope for in light of this passage? Or what do we look ahead towards in light of what we have in all of these meanings that we've discovered? An example would be when they would come to a word like Jerusalem. The literal sense would be what? Yeah, the city, somewhat in the center of Israel, somewhat to the south, uh, west of the Dead Sea. That's the literal sense. But they would also see uh, the allegorical. It could represent the soul of man, because Jerusalem's kind of the soul of Israel. So, allegorically, it could represent the soul. And even beyond that, it could represent the church, or vice versa. Uh, the tropological meaning could be the soul, allegorical, the church. And the eschatological Jerusalem would be what? The future, Revelation 21 Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. So they developed that fourfold interpretation. So they developed the fourfold it's like one person here and one person there, they're all doing these four folds of interpretation for one. Any given passage. Okay. Yeah, any given idea, any given passage. Yeah. Would you say that again? Any given passage could be approached from this fourfold. In other words, any passage. Take Romans 1 or something, or Romans 2, let's take. Okay, we can interpret it literally, we can interpret it allegorically. I gave an example of one location. The textbook, Klein, Blumberg, Hubbard, the Middle Ages was a vast desert so far as biblical interpretation is concerned. 
And the reason for that is because of the reliance on an allegorical method. So people were off on these tangents that were of little use. And that's a good statement that summarizes the Middle Ages. So allegorical was prominent. This is where tradition also began. Roman Catholic tradition in this case. So there was little good interpretation instead relying on church fathers, relying on others for doctrine, tradition. The literal survived, but was not prominent. Some literal exegetes, a group called the Victorines during that period of time. Towards the end, John Wycliffe. This is also the period towards the end where scholasticism started. That is scholarship in terms of interpretation and theology. And the best known is Thomas Aquinas, where much of later Roman Catholic theology depends. And there's the date for Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 1274. Scholasticism and intellectual awakening in Europe started in the monasteries and mainly as a result of interpretation and writings and discussions. This is a period of Anselm. Anselm would have been a scholastic. Peter Abelard, if you've heard of him, but Aquinas is probably the best known. After the Middle Ages, in the 16th century or the 1500s, we have the Reformation. Let's take a break.